Welcome to Collecting Culture, a podcast about collectors and the objects they love. I'm Andrew Logan, and this month I'm guest hosting for my sister Liz and talking to Doc Mack. Since 2010, Doc has been the operator of Galloping Ghost Arcade, a video game arcade in Brookfield, Illinois, outside of Chicago. It's the world's largest public arcade game collection, and walking in is truly like stepping out of a time machine. Doc grew up on fighting games, and he bought his first arcade cabinet, NARC, when he was only 16 years old. Classic arcade fighting games like Mortal Kombat furthered his interest in martial arts, game design, and arcade electronics restoration. What I find most inspiring about Doc is his entrepreneurial spirit and his will to share his passion with others. Whether it's helping to open new arcades, legitimize professional gaming through high score verification, or bringing the next generation of fighting game, Dark Presence, to arcade floors from his own Galloping Ghost Studios. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Doc Mack. I've collected stuff my whole life. Started with uh, Transformers and it evolved into uh, Sega Genesis. And I had every commercially released Sega Genesis game. It was over 700 games. Um, and it, it was when I sold that to open up the production company, it kind of quelled it, my collecting for a bit. Uh, but it was it later resur- resurfaced in collecting Godzilla models and sold that at one point. And uh, the nice thing about the arcade collection is it's a, a compulsion for me. Like it's I love tracking down these rare cabinets, um, especially the rare ones. Some of them that we have are there's one of one cabinet and it's here. And other collectors, I, I hear it constantly. Like, you're crazy that you have this one-of-one one cabinet and you're letting whoever come and play it. And But to me, especially from uh, as being a game designer, game developer, it's, it's like that's what they're meant to be. Like, they're meant to be played. They're meant for people in, to enjoy them. Um, and uh, completely no disrespect to any of the other collectors that have personal collections in their house that... To each their own. And it is sometimes hard for me to uh, see somebody uh, playing rough on a cabinet that they have no idea that it's a one-of-a-kind cabinet. But we always use that as the way to go let them know. It's like, hey, you can't be that rough on that machine. And let me tell you why. It's because this is a really special cabinet. It's the only one. It was given to us by the guy that created it. And that really helps push the the knowledge of the place uh, to to the people that play here. Um, It's not just, hey, don't be rough on the machines. It's, hey, let me tell you a little bit so you have a better experience here and have a greater understanding of a lot of these games. Um, Every cabinet out there, there's a story of how we got it. It's taken a lot of work to get it running and on top of it, keep it running. And... It is, we have people that come in and say this place is, is like a museum. It's, it's, there's so much history on that floor that um, having a way to convey that to people 
uh, you tell them the rules, but instead of it just being rules, like given the history of it, just takes it to some a different place. So I was doing some research for this and reading about the heyday of arcades between kind of 79, 81, and there was a stigma with certain places arcades would pop up and they people felt like kids would go there and then it would be teenagers and and it it bred a bad uh, thing in the in the community some people felt do you think the demographic has changed and what do you see your spot in the community here now as i think there's so many misconceptions to what people consider to be just everything about this industry. I think there's so many different misconceptions about it. A lot of the concerns that they had back in the 80s of uh, like the the kids and teens and problems that may occur. uh, I think with a lot of that has been that it's still there. Like people think that that's still uh, going to be issues. It's been decades and that was kind of like the birth of it. And things happen. There was it, it being such a cash-heavy industry. Everybody thinks that there's mafia ties and it's uh, gangs having fights in the arcades and stuff. And it's so far from that. Um, but the concerns are there. And that's one of the big things with... We've helped 22 arcades open since we've opened. And we've had to get laws changed at several cities just because the initial outlook is, oh, I don't want an arcade in my town because it's going to bring all these problems. And that's so far from what actually happens. Um, We've been open for seven years and there's never been one incident here. And even we just had an event with Combat Con and we had over 500 people at it from all over the world, Chile, Luxembourg, uh, Australia, Argentina, all over the US. And it's this thing that everybody's concerned about violent video games and stuff. And But really what's happened is you can get 500 people together, not see anything but smiles, and everybody going so out of their way to have, like talk to one another and interact and mingle and it's, an amazing thing that if the rest of the world could work like that, you'd have no problems. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I think it's misconceptions that keep arcades out even still. It's so many levels of it. Like people, even yourself, you just said in the heyday uh, up until 1981 or whatever. And it's like, to me, the arcades seem to work in almost like a seven-year cycle. Uh, where you have what people consider the classics of arcades that kind of ran from like 77, 76, 77 to like 84. And then a lot of people say that was the end of the end of the era. But really happens was it went from classic gaming to the JAMA games started coming out. JAMA uh, after 1984 became the industry standard. Uh, So you could basically almost it worked almost like a console system where you would just take the board out and put another board in and the power worked the same for every board. The controls pretty much worked the same. The video worked the same. The audio worked the same. Um, So it would be a quick switch between them. Um, But 
everybody thinks that it ended there. And that had its own robust life up until from like 84 to about 91. And then the people that are into the JAMA games say that that kind of died there. When what really happened is the fighting scene took over and you had Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and King of Fighters and that lasted another seven years. And then at the end of the 90s, you're getting into shmups and Dance Dance Revolution. And it's this constantly evolving uh, industry that as soon as whenever somebody joins in and they're into it, they look at it as like, oh, that ended and that's the end of it. And it's, it's really just this evolving continuation. And just how people refer to it from how it directly impacts them and how it interests them instead of taking a step back and realizing it is just this one giant thing. Um, it's never gone away. Companies like Raw Thrills and Play Mechanics and places like Dave & Buster's and Gameworks have kept the fires burning. And now it's kind of evolved into this new amalgamation of like, this hybrid thing where it's classic stuff is being reintroduced and people are taking it like it's starting all over. So it's an amazing thing. So you had a couple arcade cabinets and then when you, you sold those and when you found a Craigslist ad. The first, I bought one cabinet um, back when I was 16. I bought NARC. Um, just love the arcade game. Uh, the console versions just weren't, never did it justice. So uh, when I was working, it, it was just I had to have it. Um, and then the next games I picked up were, uh, it was a Bionic Commando and a Twin Cobra, which I just pretty much bought any cabinets that I could find that were cheap because I wanted to learn how they worked and convert them to be Mortal Kombat cabinets. When the arcade actually opened, um, our first batch of games that we picked up was uh, 114 machines out in Iowa. And it was classic stuff and vectors and um, just stuff I had never even seen or known how it worked. And it was eight months of nonstop rewiring and fixing monitors and uh, rewiring all the controls, all the power supplies. Was it a guy in Iowa or was it a, a store or an old arcade or it, what? It was a distributor that was closing up. Most of them hadn't been turned on in like 20 years. So it was, everything was just filthy, just caked in dust and... Um, it was, we weren't allowed to turn anything on. Each machine was about $40 each, which is, it ended up costing us like five grand for 114 machines. Um, then they had another warehouse where we, in Tennessee, that we picked up another 87 cabinets from. And same thing, of the 114, only eight turned on. So it, but it was the foundation and so many different games. Um, like looking at it now, I regret not buying every single game that they had, but it was, uh, the, the industry now has changed so much. Um, the times of like inexpensive, ca like games that I was paying $40 for then are now, that's a $2,000 game for it. Uh, games that you saw, I saw every single day I haven't seen in months and months and months now. Like even common stuff that you would expect. It's everything is becoming rare. Not only just because 
the collector market has grown, but so many people are opening up new arcades, which is a phenomenal thing, but it's, it's making it all change. And we're in a good spot just because we, we've got 615 machines on the arcade floor right now. Um, I've got about 180 more cabinets and boards that we will be putting into our next expansion. So we're, we're continuing to grow. It's a, so It's very similar sentiments to what you hear to people who donate their collection to a museum and so that people can enjoy it. And that's so cool. Um, storage constraints, obviously. Uh, you have to have, what, f two feet by two feet and then another two feet in front for someone to play it. And so where are you in, in terms of this facility and, and what you can accommodate? We are... Right now, we're we might have one cabinet space on the floor right now that uh, we put a new game on the floor every Monday. I think we've got this Monday covered, but it's the race right now. We've been doing our Monday mystery game for going on two years, and it's a streak that I would hate to break, but it might actually be the time where uh, we are just so tight on space that I, I don't have any more tricks up our sleeve to, to make it work, to keep putting up new games. Um, we're opening up, uh, the arcade just started with one building. We spilled over into the second building. Uh, the third building, which originally housed our production offices, we moved that two blocks to the east. So, and then turned that area into more arcade. And now we're spilling over into the fourth building. So fortunately, our landlord has been super cool. He bought another building so we, he can move all his stuff so we can have that space to, to knock down the walls and join it all. And we should have room for another three to over 300 games. So we should end up with around 1,000 machines. And that'll sustain us for a bit. But as soon as that expansion happens, we'll probably put 40 machines on the floor for the launch of the expansion. Thin out the areas on the arcade that are making them a little tight because it's, it's very packed in there right now. But it'll give us a, a bit of time to grow. And uh, already we're talking about how can we get more space out of the building. And there's a Chinese restaurant that's next door. Like they're not using the back half of their building. We'll eventually end up with that. And, it's just, um, we'll keep growing, people keep coming, the arcade, it, it's got such an amazing customer base that uh, we just want to keep making it bigger and better for everybody that plays here. How about power constraints? Is that <laughs> difficult? Power is, uh, it's pretty good. Right now it's, in some areas are getting pretty close to max capacity. The main arcade has three breaker boxes. The second expansion has its own. Uh, the third building has its own. And the fourth building, I believe, will have its own. It'll have two. Um, so power-wise, it's, it's never been that bad uh, growing the power as we're adding more games. It's, you can, there's a lot of space in the circuit boxes to add more breakers and... Um, it, it's interesting, we use so much power. We've looked into solar first and uh, we use more power than a manufacturing plant. Um, and even if we covered literally the entire block from the 
Chinese restaurant, that building, the arcade, the second building, the third building, and the fourth building, it would barely get 20% off of our electric bill. And you have uh, a lot of world records that have been set here, too. Yeah, there's uh, over 300 games that we have world records in. Um, and and that uh, there's players that travel in from literally all over the world just to set world records here. Uh, when we, a few, about a year in after we opened a company called Orcade that uh, we had been contributing information to, it was a, uh, it initially started as an arcade tracker. Uh, it, you, you could search for what, what venues, uh, where they were, and what arcade games they had. And from the outset, uh, we had collected a lot of that data already because we were looking at places to uh, sell our game to. So we had lists of, hey, this place has this game. And so we entered about 80 locations in right when Arcade was starting. When we actually opened our arcade, David Hernley, who was the owner, flew out here and he's like, hey, we're getting into scoring here, but we got to take it really seriously and... Twin Galaxies is the other scoring house that everybody knows and acknowledges, but we want to start doing that and running tournaments, and we really got behind that. Uh, and as we had uh, so many more unique games, we were setting the benchmark of what people would look at as the world record. Um, so over the years, talking with Hernley, a great site, but it really wasn't moving and progressing to the depth that we needed it. Like as we helped other arcades open, the scoring element to it is so imperative now to help new arcades get regular players to come there. And if you can get people involved in that, that's what builds the community. So we bought Orcade and now we're in this process of revamping it um, or vetting out referees. We're making a very reputable process of verifying world records and high scores and it's just something we want to really grow not only for the galloping ghost arcade but it allows us to uh, get involved with other arcades uh, even ones that we have no we've helped the places that we've opened they're very open to like yeah let's work together it's never a competition between us which is very much how it is for a lot of the old school arcades. They look at any other arcade as their competition. And here it's, no, we're all part of one community. Um, even some of the ones that might not look at it that way and they think it is a competition, if we're able to help them as arcade and not have the Galloping Ghost so tightly knit around it, uh, we hope other arcades will be more open to working with Orcade because it's, we're trying to make it give arcades so many tools to work with. This membership model versus a lot of people are having success with a bar arcade. With the different business models, it's one of the first things that a lot of people ask us when they're, they come to us asking, hey, I want to open an arcade. Should I go pay per play or door model? It's so difficult to run a pay-per-play arcade in today's age. Um, it's kind of evolved out of it. It can still work. Um, most of the ones that we've helped, uh, 
they usually open and close pretty quickly. Uh, and even though we suggest, you know, this is what you want to do, like, don't be thinking about quarters or a dollar at a time, just go with a flat rate. It changes the psychology of how people are, are playing. Um, regardless, if, if you have a pocket full of $20 in, in quarters, you still, and this was my logic, it was, it was back at the arcades, I would play the games that I know because, oh, I want to play through Double Dragon again. Even though I just went through it last week, I want to go through it again. If you're on that mentality, as you start getting all your last few dollars, you start spending them with a much, you're more selective. If you just get a door fee, you can just run wild. You, you're, you play a game for five seconds, be like, hey, I'm not into this. But it gets you trying stuff and you find so many new games that you end up loving. It's, it's just taking that whole element of there's no fiscal investment that you're putting in. So people will try crazy games that are in Japanese and there's no risks, risk to it, but it just makes the experience much bigger. I've heard a lot of people say that the, when the games and the way the, the maintenance is, it's, the maintenance ends up taking a secondary role, which to us, the maintenance is extremely important. Like these are our main bread and butter of why people are coming here. So we try to make sure everything's clean and working and we check the sticks and the monitors look good. And if something's down, we got to get it back up as quickly as possible. With the barcade, you have this element that's making far more money than what the arcades are pulling in. Um, some barcades, they let you play the arcade games for free because it's just kind of the draw. But the money is in the alcohol. It depends. There's some arcades like Logan, uh, Logan's Arcade out in, in the city. That guy is a hardcore collector and he loves games. And that guy does, James Espy really does things right. And even though he's a barcade, he cares about the arcade stuff. So, so much of it is, comes down to the person running it and their viewpoints and what they want out of the arcade. And if, if it's just a fiscal thing, like I've seen barcades that just open because they, they're putting arcade games in there. They can do well as a bar. And I think the arcade, it's just kind of this gimmick thing that they, they're using for right now. And it'll burn off eventually. Like the, stuff, the people that are true about it versus the, the people that are just exploiting a gimmick and a fad, they'll, they might never go away because they'll be running a successful bar. But the arcade side, was, is, it doesn't mean the same thing as it does to people like myself. You really have to have, be passionate about it being an arcade. You mentioned you're looking for like the last couple rare games that you know, are like the unicorns. What's the unicorn for you right now? Right now it's uh, a game called, there's, there's five games right now that are like uh, Dragon Gun from Data East, uh, which is it's just kind of, no, pretty much nobody's ever heard of it, but it's just a really cool light gun game. And I, uh, the lengths that we go to to try to find this stuff, I found a picture on Instagram of one in a mall in China. So my one of my guys, Sam, uh, he lives in a, 
his apartment is is mostly Chinese people. So I had him start calling China to try to find this mall and find the shop that had it. And he's making phone calls at three in the morning and uh, using Google Translate to talk to his, his roommate to see if he can call China. And I, it, that's one that's still eluding me. Um, Ninja Hayate, um, Time Gal, R360, they're all just... Um, they're all just outrageously rare games that I I can't even find anyone that has one. Like, it's not even a money thing. Like, it's, I can't find them. And it's, I talk with collectors. There's guys in Japan. There's a guy named Sho who has, guys had every board in the world, the, the largest arcade board collection. And... When he, I'll, I'll talk to him, and when he laughs at stuff that I'm looking at for, he, I know I'm going to have a hard time finding it. But surprisingly, every, there's a game that, uh, a prototype game, you never know when it's going to turn up. Uh, we just went on a warehouse raid, and uh, this is uh, maybe three or four weeks ago. And this guy called us out. And he's like, yeah, I've got a bunch of games. And we're, we're walking around, and he showed us his first batch of games, and it's just kind of like whatever stuff. He showed us his second batch of games, whatever. Third batch of games, we're going through these tents and stick our head in one, and it's super tight. I had to climb up on the cabinet. I'm crawling across the cabinet tops, and the, it's a lot of rips in the tent, so there's water coming in, and... I look down and there's this, I can't even tell you what game it is yet because we haven't announced that we even have it. But there's this one of a kind game. And it's, it's like, how, I crawl back out and it's, my mind is blown. And the guy telling him how rare it is. Like, I love getting rare cabinets, but I always let the people know what they have. Like, I don't want anybody to ever be like, oh, this guy stole this super rare game from me. Like, I got to feel good about this guy's going to sell it to me. He's got to know what he has. And hopefully he's fair, fair with him. The guy was super generous. He sold it for next to nothing compared to what I would have paid. And I told him what I would pay. But so many people are wait, it's going to be at a place where people are going to enjoy this because it's been sitting in this tent for 25 years. And it's, you never know where you're going to find them. Like, they're all out there somewhere. They're in somebody's basement. It might be the only game that they own or they're in some warehouse. And it's just, that's half the fun of it. Me and this guy, Jeremy Fox, who runs uh, Prince Arcades, we've driven out to Mississippi and we'll go out just all over the U S trying to find games. And most of the time it's, it's common stuff and we're always buying like, uh, there's a place in Decatur and Mount prospect, this guy, Troy Smith, who I bought so many games from, but sometimes he'll just have that one rare one. That'll be like, Oh my God, I've, I've been looking for that for forever. Um, I just picked one up off uh, eBay. There's a, 
a guy that wanted to sell me a cabinet for $1,800. And I've been, it's a lot for, I don't normally spend that much on a game. I compulsively check eBay and Yahoo Japan and Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and with private collectors. And this board called Rescue Raider showed up on eBay for $15. So it's a cabinet I was just about to pay $1,800 for, but I got the board for $15. And it's on the way, and nobody's ever really heard of it, but that's the full spectrum of where the pricing works within this community. So the important thing is that it ends up here and people get to enjoy it. You can find out more about Galloping Ghost Arcade, their community, and events they're holding on Facebook or at gallopingghostarcade.com. We'll be back next month with another collector.